I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, October 25th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, when leaves change color in the fall, is it just to be pretty or is it sunscreen? What the plants are doing is trying to maintain photosynthesis as long as possible to squeeze as much out of the leaf as they can before everything just sort of breaks down. And we put the municipalization debate into a national perspective. Now we look at some science and technology headlines. What do you have, Tom? With electric vehicles making slow but steady progress in the marketplace, the University of Colorado is starting a program to turn out engineers to help design them. The Colorado Springs campus and the Boulder campus have jointly landed a five-year grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. The nearly $1 million program is being headed up by Professor Greg Plett from the Colorado Springs campus, with Professor Zane Regan managing the Boulder part of the program. The goal is to train new engineers and retrain existing ones in electric vehicle drivetrains, batteries, and power electronics. No worries if you can't make it to either class, to either campus to take the classes. The program will be available in an online format as well as in old-fashioned um, in-person classrooms. According to Greg Platt, the principal investigator, there are thousands of engineers who have been displaced as the U.S. auto industry shifted or who have an interest in learning about creating vehicles of the future. Beyond the teaching aspects of the program, Platt also sees the UCCS-CU collaboration leading to new research in battery technology. He indicated that battery life and power are currently an Achilles heel of the electric vehicle industry. Solutions for reversing climate change abound, from injecting UV-deflecting particles into the atmosphere to planting fake carbon-sequestering trees. Well, what if we could do it the old-fashioned way? What would happen if we were to reforest with real trees an area the size of California? Would global temperatures drop? This experiment may already have been carried out, unwittingly, and at a greater cost than we'd be willing to pay. Researchers at Stanford have just presented findings supporting the idea that the conquest of the Americas also conquered the climate. Thriving civilizations in the New World were based around lands cleared for agriculture. When Europeans arrived and decimated 90% of the population, these now fallow lands were taken over by trees. The Stanford team argues that these new forests would have been able to soak up massive amounts of carbon dioxide, enough to account for the sudden drop in carbon dioxide seen in Antarctic ice cores during the 16th and 17th centuries. Burgeoning forests may also explain a tendency in the ice cores toward carbon-13, since lighter carbon-12 is tree leaves carbon isotope of choice, and they'd be taking that out of the atmosphere. Along with natural factors like abnormally high volcanic activity and changes in ocean currents, reforestation may have helped cool the climate for several centuries following the Middle Ages, showing that humans influenced global climate well before the Industrial Revolution. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bartel. Tonight, from 6 to 8, the CU Energy Club is holding a Boulder Municipalization Forum, moderated by Patty Limerick. The event will be held at the UMC Glenn Miller Ballroom. Tom, what's in the Science Archives today? Ted, 56 years ago today, the first domestic radar range microwave oven went on the market. At a cost of $1,300, or about 11000 in today's dollars, the initial sales were slow.
You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. The question of whether or not to have Boulder take the reins of its electric utility has been hotly debated, with hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent to convince voters for one side or the other. To help put this question into a national perspective, we're going to speak to Peter Asmus of Pike Research. Peter is a senior analyst there and is an author of several books on energy. He's on the phone with us uh, from Marin County, California. Peter, welcome back to KGNU. Good morning. Yep. Uh, Peter, there's a lot of municipal utilities out there. We've got uh, 29 of them of various sizes in Colorado. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Sacramento Municipal Utilities District, or SMUD, uh, where you've had some experience? Well, um, I actually learned all about energy in Sacramento, so I have to admit um, it's, I sort of have a bias to, to public power. And, in fact, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District ratepayers are the only ones in the entire country that have ever closed a nuclear power plant by a local public vote. And what was interesting is that there were all these gloom and doom stories. Everyone said, you know, the utility was nuts for doing this. It was going to go under. But ironically enough, that vote sort of galvanized local citizens, and then the utility ended up launching these major conservation power plant programs, solar, wind, um, and all that kind of groovy stuff. So it, it's really a, a, a big success story. So, so Peter, you, you've written quite a bit about microgrids, virtual power plants, all sorts of other innovative concepts that are, that are coming down the, the pike now. If, if Boulder did uh, uh, vote to form its own utility, uh, what sort of uh, creative uh, options would be opened, uh, open to Boulder? Well, I think, you know, the whole idea of local control is, is picking up. Um, it's something I've been active with here locally in Marin County. Um, and I think it's appealing, especially in light of some of the Occupy Wall Street movement, where some people are sort of skeptical of, of private corporations actually um, delivering on some of their promises. So, you know, I think uh, on, on the other hand, it also puts a, a greater challenge on citizens to actually make things happen locally. It's not that easy sometimes to develop things like a microgrid, which would basically allow our solar systems to keep operating when the larger grid goes down. Virtual power plants is a concept of sort of being able to stitch together lots of small distributed energy, whether it's your electric vehicle or some energy-saving devices, and sort of pulling those things together and making them look like a traditional power plant, like a coal plant, providing the same services. But, you know, ironically enough, um, there have been some federal government decisions lately that make some of this this easier. On the other hand, uh, the Tea Party movement, you know, is threatening some of the ongoing subsidies for some of the renewables, uh, despite the fact that nuclear and fossil fuels get far more money from the government. The whole Solyndra bankruptcy has sort of put this spotlight on solar and other renewables. So if uh, if Boulder did uh, want to do some of these uh, creative things, uh, perhaps make a, a microgrid or, or whatnot, uh, would we be required to, to get the Public Utilities Commission to uh, to, to approve that? Or, or as, a, as a muni, could we just go off and uh, do whatever we uh, thought was the, the most prudent thing? Yeah, well, that's the, the, the beauty of, of a municipal utility is, generally speaking, they are fairly autonomous. And, um, you know, and that can go both good and bad. But generally, I think with a community like Boulder, which has, you know, passed a carbon tax back in 2006, it's, it's obviously clear that the community is interested in doing green-type ventures. So that's, you know, one of the main positives 
associated with the municipal utility is sort of taking control at the local level and usually you know having that amount of autonomy whereas investor owned utilities like excel you know generally um you know are bound by state laws um and so there you know there can be limitations to that so their their hands can be tied on certain issues Okay, so the the main impetus for for Boulder to break away from Excel Energy is is to get us a lower uh, carbon footprint on the on the grid. But for a lot of people, um, an equally important or perhaps even more important uh, issue is is just the cost of power. Um, in your experience, uh, how do muni stack up against uh, investor-owned utilities uh, when it comes down to the uh, the monthly bill? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we have to think back now. Why do we even have municipal utilities? And that dates back all the way back to uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because the private utilities didn't want to serve rural communities. They didn't make enough money on it. And so there was this idea of, you know, how do we get power as as the country expanded westward? You know, how do we get power in these people? And so the whole idea of a municipal utility was to be a yardstick against which to measure whether the private utilities were providing prudent power sources. So historically, I think right now, um, municipal utilities provide power at 13% lower cost. And that's, you know, that number can jump all over. In some places it's 40%, in some places it's a little less. But generally speaking, the reason a municipal utility is cheaper is, one, you don't have to pay shareholders, so there's no profit uh, motive to to make and two municipal utilities have the advantage of tax exempt financing which can be key with renewable energy because with renewable energy the fuel is free and most of your cost is up front in the capital cost of the actual equipment and so the municipal utility with its tax exempt financing can reduce that upfront cost so over the long term you can actually get renewable energy at a lower cost an, an argument for the other side could perhaps be economies of scale. Um, w- would uh, w- would Boulder be less efficient uh, on a on order of a hundred megawatt utility compared to um, compared to Excel, or, or is, is economy scale not so important here? Well, you know, there, there's always pros and cons, and yes, and in Excel, obviously, I think it's 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 been um, producing and consuming the largest amount of wind power of any utility in the country. So it's you know, on the other hand. In Colorado and, and in your Rocky Mountain region, Joan, you have a lot of coal-fired power, which is the dirtiest of all fossil fuels in terms of carbon. And so you can make the argument of economies of scale. On the other hand, if there's a great interest in local power, which creates local jobs, the good news is technologies like solar photovoltaics, the cost has actually dropped by 75%. And so now, um, you know, some of those cost reductions make local energy cheaper and more affordable and we're seeing and there's even people now predicting that solar is going to be the lowest cost power source of all now that's not going to happen overnight that's over the long term but if we're focused on local energy you know there's a lot of good news out there in that regard okay and i think you had some interesting statistics on the uh, number of people employed in the uh, photovoltaics versus the coal industry Uh, could you share that with our listeners well, yeah, I think, you know, the Solyndra thing, I've been doing a lot of writing about it. It's it's become this political target of the Tea Party. But what's interesting is um, there's far more subsidies going to fossil fuels and nuclear. I mean, nuclear is the most subsidized 
technology of all, and I've never understood why any good Republican or Tea Party person who's, you know, got all the free market rhetoric could then sort of, you know, criticize solar and, and ignore nuclear. But right now there's over 100,000 people employed in the solar industry here um, in this country, and that's more than coal mining. And think about it. Coal plants produce 50% of our electricity. Solar is 1%, yet solar in some ways has more jobs than the coal mining aspect of the industry. And the other thing is that fossil fuels get over 10 times as much money from our federal government than solar and all of the renewables, yet the the fossil fuel industry has actually shed over 10,000 jobs in the last five years. So, so Peter, if you, if you dust off your crystal ball, uh, where are we going to be in 10 to 20 years? You, you think most people will be getting their power from uh, locally controlled utilities, or will uh, investor-owned uh, still be the dominant model? Oh, you know, I think the investor-owned utilities will still be the dominant model. And let me just go back to Sacramento. Now, Sacramento tried to become a municipal utility way back in 1923. PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the investor-owned utility, refused to sell its distribution system even after the bond money was raised in the 30s. And after 12 years of litigation, PG&E finally sold the system. So, you know, I think Boulder residents have to be aware that, you know, becoming a municipal utility is not easy. Often they, the vote fails. On the other hand, I think Boulder because of, of the community, the type of community it is, and the interest in local energy, I think, you know, you've got a great chance. And I would say that I don't think it's going to be, uh, take as long as, as it did with Sacramento. And, you know, I think Sacramento is just a, a good example to hold up um, to maybe inspire the residents about what might be possible in Boulder. Okay, Peter, we have uh, a little less than 30 seconds left. Uh, anything we left out or a point you want to emphasize? Well, you know, I think that, um, like I say, I think you got it, you have to be patient. Now, the other thing with local energy is the good thing is it creates more local jobs. But the other thing, I just had a meeting last week with folks, is doing local energy. When it comes to things like wind power, you know, there are going to be challenges, not in my backyard. So I think the key is to keep the big picture. And what I think about your ballot initiatives is you're not committing. There's still some off-ramps. What do you have to lose by investigating public power? I mean, that's my position. There's really nothing to lose. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That was Peter Asmus of Pike Research. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. Right now, you're listening to the famous jazz standard, Autumn Leaves. This fall's, this year's fall color has been giving us delightful eye candy. For generations, it's also let inquiring minds to wonder, why do leaves change color in the fall? Well, a simple answer is that small amounts of yellow and orange colors were in the leaves all along. In the autumn, when green chlorophyll levels drop, you can finally see the other colors. Now, this is sort of true, but this explanation leaves the impression that yellow and orange reds, yellows, oranges, and reds are leftover colors that a plant can afford to just forget about. It turns out plants are smarter than that. It's far more likely that the yellows and reds are a form of sunscreen that leaves make on purpose. 
to protect precious nutrients being shuttled from the leaves down into the roots where they would be stored until spring. The scientist responsible for providing this theory is a plant breeding specialist at the Montana State University named Bill Hoke. Up next, How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talks with Bill Hoke. Hoke begins by talking about what he calls a common and, when you think about it, a silly urban legend about leaves. That legend is that in the fall, sugars get trapped accidentally in the leaves, and this is what turns some of those leaves bright red. Here is what Hoke had to say. You'll see a lot of reports that still say that it's because of sugars getting trapped in the leaves as it gets cold in the fall, and those sugars can't get out of the leaf, and so they're just, for some reason, just turned into anthocyanins. And none of that makes any sense, and of course it's not true that things get trapped in the leaves in autumn. The, the leaf stays connected to the tree, and there's flow between the leaf and the tree long after the leaf has any use. And so clearly that's not correct. Well, you focus on something called an anthocyanin. That's the red pigment that some trees produce in autumn while the leaves are senescing. Is there some reason why this color is red and it's not purple and it's not uh, pink? Well, the green, of course, are the chlorophylls, and those are broken down as part of the senescence process, part of this nutrient recovery process that takes place in autumn in, the, in all the trees. As the green goes away, as the chlorophyll is broken down, the reds that are produced in some species are produced to protect the leaf from high light levels. And the reason that they use red is that red absorbs more of the blue than other colors might. The blue is the wavelengths that are most damaging to the photosystems, they're the highest energy. And that's why they're being preferentially absorbed. And see, what's happening is, is while these things are being broken down so the plant can recover the nutrients, those photosystems become much more susceptible to high light damage in some species. A light level that, say, a maple tree could easily manage in the summer can become damaging in the fall while those photosystems are being broken down. It's like anything else when you're transporting something. When you're going from one place to another, you're a bit more vulnerable. You don't have your regular securities around you so you're more susceptible yes it's a, a good analogy is it just that the leaf is trying to still photosynthesize as much as possible or is it just protecting everything the amount of photosynthesis taking place at that time is trivial relative to the amount of photosynthesis the tree performs the rest of the year okay in fact the amount of photosynthesis it produces during the entire senescence process is probably less than one day in june probably okay the reason it's so important then is that without some photosynthesis going on, there's no export from the leaf. If you stop photosynthesis, you stop export from the leaf. And so what the plants are doing is trying to maintain photosynthesis as long as possible to squeeze as much out of the leaf as they can before everything just sort of breaks down. When you say squeeze as much out of the leaf as it can, that's not only the sugars and energy, but the building blocks for making the energy producing machines in the spring? Exactly right. In fact, the sugar itself is trivial. It's absolutely meaningless to the plant, the energy that's being produced at that time. What they're really after are nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus, okay, and, and some other nutrients as well, depending on the species. Some other nutrients may be more important or less important. But certainly nitrogen and phosphorus are major nutrients being recovered during this time. The nutrients during the summer are in the photosynthetic components. Okay, They're in the membranes and enzymes. And those things are broken down to their constituent amino acids, the, the very simple building blocks, and those are what's transported out. So it's just taking basic everything, just the simplest kind of thing, but it's pulling it down and it needs to have the vanguard 
or not the vanguard, the, the rear guard protecting it while it goes away. And so you're getting it stripped down to these basic components, amino acids primarily, and then you need photosynthesis to have some movement, some flow out of the leaf, and it moves these amino acids along with it. Why do you suppose some plants prefer yellow over red? All plants have yellow in them, and those are the carotenoids. They're the class of pigments that give carrots their color, hence the carotenoids, carrot. But all plants use those during the growing season, and those are for photoprotection. Those are there as antioxidants to help manage um, free radicals and, and other harmful compounds that are produced as a byproduct of photosynthesis, particularly when there's very high levels of photosynthesis in, in the summer. Um, a lot of these free radicals are being produced. So those yellows are always there, and you see them only when the green goes away, when the chlorophylls are broken down. So the yellows are always there in all species. What you see, the reds, though, are produced specifically during this senescence process as a photoprotection, okay? And so if you see a plant that doesn't turn red, it's just turning yellow, um, it doesn't produce those anthocyanins. It doesn't produce the red color, but on the other hand, it sounds like that yellow is still doing a job when it's there in the fall. It is, exactly. Exactly right. They're, they're, they remain in, those, in the chloroplasts, in those uh, photosystems, and they're right. They're not exported, and presumably they're there also uh, to maintain photoprotection throughout the senescence process. Does all this make you kind of shake your head when you think about what the standard explanation has been for why trees turn red and yellow in the fall. What's interesting is how those old paradigms die hard. I mean, this information first came out in 2001 when I published that first paper, but you're right, every year you'll see the same old things repeated. The energy efficiency of plants is much more profound than we thought. They put energy into making these colors because it's worth it to put that extra energy into salvage what's there. Exactly, and these nutrients, especially nitrogen and phosphorus, are often limiting in the environment, and they're the limiting factor in growth and reproduction. And so if they're important, the plants are going to do everything they can to recover them and, and reuse them. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Bill Hoke is a plant scientist at the University of Montana, where he says he's using his knowledge of why leaves turn color in the fall to breed plants that are hardier and have even prettier fall colors. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Tom McKinnon, who also produced today's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. And we had additional music today from the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And thanks to Ted Burnham for running the board. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our, our podcast. You can also find our program on the Stitcher app for your smartphone. Thanks also to Beth Bartell for her assistance with an extra headline today. You can send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Tom McKinnon.